everybody. Welcome to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out all the stuff we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. This week, I'm talking with Will Ritter, the founder of the biggest splitboard binding company in the world, Spark R&D. And not only is Spark R&D the biggest splitty binding manufacturer in the world, they design it all and build it all in their factory in Bozeman, Montana. This turned into such an interesting conversation with Will that we are cutting it up into two parts. So here in part one, we are going to talk about the history of Spark R&D and the story of what got Will to quit his job to start this company, how it then evolved, and why, as Will so eloquently puts it, starting a company will beat the zen right into you. And whether or not you've ever even ridden a snowboard, if you have ever even thought about starting any company of any kind, then listen closely, because I promise you that you will glean some very real insights into what actually goes into running and building a company from day to day. And we will then be posting later part two of this conversation where Will and I went deeper into Spark R&D's specific products. We discuss hard boots versus soft boots, how much room Will thinks there is for split boards to improve, and more. But for now, let's get to the origin story of Spark R&D and listen to Will kindly share some real words of wisdom for anyone thinking of starting anything. Will, how are you today? I'm doing well. I am coming down from all the sugar yesterday on Halloween, <laughs> so... Was it a... Did you score? Well, my kids did. Good. Then... That was a good caveat. I was hoping there was going to be some mention of, like, the children you were out trick-or-treating with as opposed to yeah. you just being out. Okay. No, yeah, the four and the six-year-old cleaned up for sure. I mean, okay. they get... Their little pumpkins get full and then they just kind of get like bored with it. So, you mm. know, yeah. But, you know, in our house, the sugar Sprite comes and they make a big donation to the sugar Sprite who will use it to like build her house or whatever she needs doing just to try and get a big chunk of the candy out of the house. But basically then that's what Becca and I chow down on <laughs> is all of the sugar Sprite's <laughs> candy that's been... So wait, you've created the myth of the sugar sprite, which you then use to steal all the candy that your children collected? Well, well, it comes from another family, actually, that uh, Becca used to babysit for back in the day when we were dating. They had the sugar sprite going, so she brought that into our house as well. But the uh, the main goal is to try and not, you know have our two kids that weigh under 50 pounds each have like 10 pounds a piece of candy hanging around the house so right um but yeah so well, yeah we try and exercise some uh restraint on our be on ourselves as well but that can be challenging so well on the one hand i appreciate you trying to stave off you know like diabetes in small children but i do think there we've just raised some questions about child labor laws that also <laughs> We may want to explore, you know, in this podcast, but I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I'm, what an interesting start. I didn't think we would begin by (laughs) talking about the sugar Sprite. Tell me, for those who don't know, where are you right now? Sure. So I'm here in Bozeman, Montana, Mm -hmm. right here in our 
the Spark uh, facility, which is our combined offices and our factory are both right here in town. Um, if you're familiar with Bozeman, um, as you're heading out towards Bridger Bowl, we are on that side of things and about 15 minutes away from um, Bridger and the Bridger Mountains and shredding of all kinds. That sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so many questions. I, I actually want to get to a number of questions about your personal backstory and then, you know, of course, the backstory of Spark. And so let's just start there. Simple question. When did you start Spark? Yeah, so Spark started in 2006. Actually, we have on our calendar that Spark's birthday is uh, the 3rd of November here. So we're about to round uh-huh. another another one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, it had started a bit before that. Just I was doing some consulting as like a design engineer um, and picked the name Spark R&D first um, there, but was also starting to think about the binding stuff. but. In earnest, that is when I uh, first unveiled like the binding protos on the web on splitboard.com website back in the day. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what we use as our more more official birthday since most people are interested in our bindings, not my uh, engineering consulting on random products <laughs> back in the day. So. Well, wait, I've, it turns out I'm interested in your, your design consulting on uh, mm-hmm. random products. Sure. How, how random were the products? Uh it was, you know, it was quite a mix. Uh, and we did we did do bindings and consulting um kind of in parallel while the company was getting off the ground for the first few years. So like one of the first projects I worked on was a um documenting a tower that a local company was making for s- small-scale wind turbines. Did some work on that front, helped them work on some uh, like layout of solar panels where it was like mocking up a house and like where the trees are and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, would there be shading on the solar panels as the year goes on? Hmm. I also worked on uh, the shroom bob, which I believe is still around, which is a, uh, a ski bob, which is like a seated kind of ski bike deal and you wear short uh, boot skis on your feet uh-huh. and I helped uh, work on that for another uh, uh, great guy in town here Bob awesome guy his wife had a really bad um, TBI when they were hiking and so mm-hmm. she wasn't able to ski anymore and so um, he had been finding ski bobs from different you know European companies or um, I think he had some from K2 as well um, but the loading on the chairlift was really difficult with those because they're, mm. you know, generally designed for like able-bodied people, you know, or you yeah. need someone else to like manage the ski bob on the chair. We made one where the seat is uh, kind of cantilevered so you could actually ride up the chair on the ski bob. So got to do, got to do that. Um, for those of you that remember the mfd ski binding mm-hmm. uh, i helped uh jason priggy out with that um, huh. i'm not sure i knew that yeah not a ton of people did um you know we didn't talk about it too much but what help me out understand that yeah i mean i mm-hmm. i guarantee that some listeners of this podcast will certainly remember the mfd roughly what year are we talking about then 
Oh, that was early on. So I think that was probably like, oh, I don't know, 08, 2010, yeah. something like that back yeah. then. But yeah, I worked with Jason, um, who's again, another awesome dude. It was great doing the consulting stuff to meet a bunch of different people. And mm-hmm. um, he's still uh, in the industry um, designing backpacks. I just saw him at OR slash SIA uh, this year working mm-hmm. on working on some packs for some brands that are out there. I don't know if I'm at liberty to disclose which ones, but mm-hmm. cool stuff for sure. So Jason's doing great from what I've seen. And, um, but yeah, we, you know, he kind of, he had worked on, a when he was in uh design school, he had worked on a kind of a prototype of an MFD type thing. Um, which was essentially, you know, he was trying to mount a full on DH, uh, ski binding uh, to an adapter that was tourable, you know, to try and get at the best of, you know, best of both worlds for guys like him that were, you know, wanting to go out and tour, but then lock it in and be in full send mode, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point. So worked on that uh, for quite a while with him and, um, you know, helped him get moving. Um, but it's, you know, it, in hindsight, like I, I wish it had worked out better for him. And if maybe if we had gotten started earlier or something, but, you know, just seeing how that landscape yep. has changed over time, it's, um, you know, he, in talking to him about it, it was kind of like, there was always going to be a finite window for a product like that, because sooner or later the, you know, the big dudes would catch on and start making some good, uh, touring gear for, you know, more full on DH dh uh you know skiing action so anyway you know i think he certainly did his part to kind of pave the way for where that that side of things is going now yeah yeah so spark r&d is launched in 2006 arguably november 3rd was this sort of more of a consulting company at the time Definitely. I was, I was only spending money on making splitboard bindings, not making money doing it (laughs) at that point. So that was when we were, you know, that was full on, you know, this, the start of, um, you know, I had protos at that point that, uh, were rideable and so on, but yeah, it was not, not yet a product, not yet something that could be sold. So, so it was great to have the consulting work because, I was able to do both, you know, and then the consulting work helped, you know, essentially pay the bill for, um, us getting bindings, uh, to, uh, something that could actually be sold. So, yeah. um, all the, all the split borders out there, oh, you know, all my random consulting, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, them, uh, not of the, not of the head for, you know, help getting the company rolling at that point. And part of it too, was just, I had been working at a product design firm in town here and then jumped off to be like more of a contract, uh, employee. But part of it was just not having the full day job schedule anymore at that point and like freeing up my time a little bit, but it was certainly, you know, as anybody knows with any kind of freelance thing, like the consulting stuff, it would either be like, oh, I don't have anything going on today. I can work on bindings. And then like the phone would ring and then I'd yep. have four huge projects. And then rather than, you know, working quarter time on consulting, I'm working one and a half time and all that stuff. So yep. 
but you know, it at least got, got things moving in that direction and got me, you know, started with starting a, you know, just starting a company is a challenge as far as getting your LLC filed, finding a place to rent and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was, it was a great way to get rolling and not just be, you know, things might've happened a little faster if I had like had an investor or something and, you know, was just bindings the whole time and just like burnt money from the beginning, but it was huge to have a revenue source. And I definitely learned a ton on other people's projects that I was able to, you know, roll into our stuff. Hmm. So I, I might just be slow today. I'm only on my second cup of coffee, but, um, just to clarify for me, if no one else, Spark R&D was launched specifically to produce splitboard bindings or Spark R&D was launched as a something or other way to quit your day job as a product designer and start, well, focusing or tinkering with splitboard bindings and other products? Like how specific to, you know, how we think of Spark R&D today, how -hmm. much of that was like, yeah, that's what I launched in 2006 versus this was like from 2006 to present day, this has been a winding path in evolution. Sure. Um, you know, without getting into 20,000 words on it, like it was kind of a, I thought of it at the time as like kind of a 50, 50 shot, you know, sort of thing Mm -hmm. where it's like, well, jump off, we'll do some consulting stuff. Either that, you know, that may go well enough that this binding thing I've been kicking around may just not seem worth the trouble. Mm-hmm. Or this will enable me to do this binding that in earnest that I've really been wanting to do. And someday we'll probably go one way or the other, you know, yep. and here we are today and I haven't done any consulting work in forever. So yeah. <laughs> it it worked out on the binding side of things. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And talk to me a bit about the backcountry snowboarding landscape in 2006. Mm-hmm. Backcountry skiing and riding is certainly enjoying a moment now, but man, that seems um, pretty fringe back in 2006. True or false? Oh, it was very fringe. Yeah. You know, at the time I had been, you know, even in 06, I had been snowboarding for a long time and had lived in Bozeman for like eight years. You know, I, mm-hmm. I moved from Minnesota, so I was still uh you know essentially didn't get into big mountains until i was 20 mm-hmm. um in 98 there so you know at the time the our local resort here bridger bowl uh has a lot of terrain that you can only hike to mm-hmm. um and so you know and that's where the good stuff is and the deep snow and all that action so it kind of it ends up just creating more and more backcountry users because you go and ride chairs and then that stuff, you know, gets, can get, you know, all skied out or gets a little boring, whatever. And you see everyone else is hiking and you're like, well, what's up with that? So then you get a transceiver and a shovel and hopefully learn a little bit of something and grab a partner. (laughs) And then you start hiking the Ridge and then, you know, sooner or later, the ridge is all tracked out because it hasn't snowed in a while. And then you hike to the end of the rope and then you look outside the rope and you're like, well, what's out there? Mm-hmm. And, you know, thus begins another backcountry, you know, user or whatever. And so yep. I had kind of followed that track, but, um, 
just with the state of things at the time, I was more um, snowshoe and snowmobile based as most, you know, of the snowboarders I knew around here at the time were. Um, I hadn't seen a split board until probably like 05, something mm-hmm. like that. So uh, my friend, uh, Julie Hainan, what's up, Julie? Uh, she took me out or you know she had a split board and she was like the first person i'd met that owned one and uh we went out um to a place called beehive basin and it was kind of one of those things where you know at the time the local board shop world boards um they you know jay is awesome there and always wants to have a huge variety of gear and you know a bit of everything for everybody and you know at the time he probably had one volley board and one like Burton split board sitting in the corner there. And that was the extent of the split board selection in town. So, you know, I'd like to say at the time I was a pretty knowledgeable snowboarder and, you know, I had been doing it for, I don't know what, 15 years at the time. And I didn't know what a split board was. And like for years, you know, in 2006 and the years afterwards, you know, guys, I know that were, way better shredders than me that have been, you know, hiking the ridge for, you know, 15 years and whatever. And it, it had snowmobiles, whatever, like they didn't even know that a split board existed. So yeah. it was very, very fringy at the time. Um, lots of DIY boards, you know, where people were cutting boards in half, yeah. um, and using the volley kit to do that. Um, and you know, part of it too, at the time was just, the people I knew as well as people in their like early twenties, like just getting out of college, whatever. So people didn't have a lot of money to throw around on, you know, a factory split board versus, uh, you know, versus a, uh, a DIY and, you know, hopefully people were spending money on, you know, the first digital transceivers back then, <laughs> yep. you know? Yep. Um, so that was kind of the state, you know, even, you know, I hadn't heard of, you know, Volley and they're down in Salt Lake, which is like, you know, relatively close by in Western terms and so on. So, um, so yeah, it was, and even though they had been at it for about a decade at that point, I think it was, you know, it was probably well known to, you know, a certain crew around Salt Lake and, um, you know, Nitro and some folks in Europe had worked on some stuff. So I think there was like, you know, some small cells where people were in the know about it, but yeah, by and large, it was, you know, pretty, uh, pretty primordial in the splitboard world back mm. then. And, you know, I mean, even then in skiing, it was like, oh, you know, those are the telemark skis that's for touring, yep. you know, and, yep. and, you know, so there wasn't, it was just, just getting to have some friends that had like a set of Fritchies and stuff back then. So yeah, it was compared to now it was, it was very, very very different. <laughs> so would yeah. you say the actual story of what got you to thinking about, huh, why don't I try to make a binding for a split board that lets you go uphill? Is the is the sort of truest version of that story like I just told you it was what we were doing at Bridger? Or is it that you were starting to you were in a community and you were seeing you know and hearing enough about this kind of starting up and that was enough of an impetus to get you to think like i bet i could design something so the you know the version is that first day out friend julie 
took me touring and I borrowed a board from uh, my friend Matt, you know, the only two people I knew that had split boards. And I got out there and, you know, just right out of the parking lot, I'm like, this is awesome because Mm -hmm. I wasn't snowshoeing. I didn't have a board on my back. Um, and you know, skins are just such an efficient way to get around. And I had, I had seen, um, you know, even just from like going out there and snowshoeing with the kind of snow we have, you know, we'd be out there just like huffing and puffing. And then our friends would be riding up the, you know, riding up the magic carpet ride on the skin track and Mm -hmm. just like chilling and talking to each other. So it was kind of like, huh, there's something to that, you know, that (laughs) looks pretty, that looks like a good way to go compared to what we were doing. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, day one on split board, probably still within sight of the parking lot. It was like, a, this is awesome. Like I'm skinning, you know, skinning is great. Um, you know, very efficient way to get around. Um, but you know, at the same time, even just from setting it up, you know, at the time it was mounting a conventional binding onto an adapter. That was what, you know, both Volley and, and this Burton setup that I was using had going on. Um, and, uh, you know, even setting it up, I was just looking at it and I was like, huh, well, it seems like I've got half a, you know, I've got a binding on top of like half a binding here and you're mounting up you know, a binding that's meant to be adjustable to whatever angle you want is always mounted at zero degrees. So like, here's this adjustment that you don't need, you know, and just kind of looking at the thing and it's like, well, you've got a double thick base plate. You've got this adjustment that you don't need. You got all these extra parts. Um, you know, it just seemed like, well, let's just put these two things together and start there, you know? So it was, it was really, you know, I was definitely not the first person to have that idea looking at it but for whatever reason the planets aligned that i was the first one to like really take a run at it and make something you know that that could work and was manufacturable and wasn't you know too expensive or any of that stuff so because it you know while it did work you know you had a binding on top of another adapter and so for both touring and riding you're twice as high off the border skis as you needed to be. And so, you know, everything's kind of tippy on that front. You felt kind of like disconnected from the board when you're riding. And then just the weight factor too, you know, there was, we're coming in, you know, with a couple extra pounds more than you would need on your mm-hmm. feet. So it, you know, there was just a lot of, a lot of good reasons to pursue a split specific binding, um, that were pretty clear to me. So that's really what got me into it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was from, you know, from the first time I got on it and definitely like thought about it for quite a while before I actually did anything. And, you know, looking at the Burton setup that I had used at the time, making that binding was going to be a pretty difficult thing to do. Cause there's a pretty substantial mechanism in their adapter. And then later on I got onto a onto a volley setup and that was just such a simpler design you know Mm. and so from that i was like oh well i could design something around this and started tinkering and got parts made and then i was i was on a set so Mm. yeah it was it was uh good times for sure Mm. talk to me a bit about how you think about the key milestones 
sort of between 2006 to the present day, like Mm -hmm. where were the breakthroughs just strictly from a product point of view for you, you know, the like aha moment. And then we made this tweak and it really changed the game, changed the product. I'm going to not assume that this has been some sort of, you know, clean linear uh, trajectory up, you know, from from year to year, but the, that there were these inflection points. Is that mm-hmm. accurate? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I think for anybody um, that's trying to make something is make one, you know, mm-hmm. and I see so many people that never even get there and it drives me bonkers because um, they'll hang out, they'll create some you know, I want to do this thing. Like, I'm okay, cool. I'm going to hang out on my computer and make like a 200 page business plan, you know, and have some perfect idea of where I'm going to be in five years. Or, you know, for starters, it's like, all right, I need an injection mold. So I guess I'm going to need 30 grand from somewhere. So I'm going to start like fundraising or whatever, you know, and like, the thing to do is like, just get out in the garage and just start hacking some stuff together, (laughs) you know? And so, you know, that, at least from, you know, and I, the first bindings was a mix of like, you know, I took, took parts off of an off as many parts as possible off of an off the shelf binding as I could. Um, and then I had some custom sheet metal and machine parts made around here, which I was, you know, I had good contacts for that stuff through my project at, or through my, um, design engineer job that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, um, You know, even if it was like, well, I don't really have the pin figured out, but let's just get this thing like something that I can use in any fashion and it'll figure out the rest, you know, as time goes on. So, so that's a big milestone is like make one, even if it only works halfway or like, you know, if you're going to make a ski binding and you're like, well, I can only ski like a green circle on this thing, but just to see if it works at all, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and you always learn a ton as soon as you get something out in an actual use scenario, you learn a ton compared to just like mulling it over in your head and thinking you're going to know what all the issues are or whatever um, with it. So, so making one is huge. Um, beyond making one, your first production run is really huge. And so, you know, the first year that we um, sold bindings, we sold a hundred. And that took us like the entire winter to make a hundred bindings, you know, which now like my guys do in part of a day, you know, but it was Mm -hmm. just that we could, you know, make a product that people actually wanted to like part with their hard earned dollars over. And then that we, you know, made more than one of them and they weren't all, I mean, they were certainly had some variation to them, you know, probably an embarrassing amount if I were to see them now, but just that we could scale it, you know, at that time scale was a hundred, you know, and that's huge. That was, you know, I think the year before that I went through probably like eight or nine prototypes, you know, or I got to a point where it's like, this is pretty good. So I made like, built like four of the same ones and sent them off to people to try out and stuff like that. So getting to your first year of production of any of any size is another huge milestone because you see a lot of people get into like the prototype area and like making one of anything is like really fun and exciting um and you don't really worry about how many hours you're putting into it or how much money you put into it but making any number of them and not just like totally going bankrupt is huge (laughs) you know because it's like 
you know, you see people do that all the time, like on Kickstarter or something where they've made protos and they're like, okay, this is about what this thing should cost. And then they get into the production side and then they like fold up because they're like, oh, these things take way longer than we thought they would, or they're too expensive or they, you know, can't be made uh, in a consistent fashion or any other number of things. So, you know, you learn all those things in production. Prototypes aren't production. Um, so yeah, there's a big, there's a big chasm to get across there. Um, beyond that, you know, we did the first, the first, um, couple years of bindings were like a sheet metal style. So Mm -hmm. we had sheet metal and some machine plastic parts and some other machined parts and we like riveted all that stuff together. So you know, most of the binding was built by outside people at that point. Um, but when we got into our one piece construction base plates where we were making those on, you know, had to buy equipment to get there. Um, that was another huge step for us because I had a small, um, CNC machine that we used for prototypes and, and like some production of the smaller parts, which was cost me about eight thousand dollars for that machine but to get into making like the one piece design which is you know we're still doing one piece base plates now mm-hmm. i had to had to get into a a you know really industrialized you know conventional cnc machine and that one was you know 35 grand just for the machine price you know used like 10 year old machine and then you know then you need vices that go on that machine and those used are going to be 800 bucks a piece and then you need a tool holder to hold each tool that's in there and there's 20 of them and they each cost 100 bucks you know so it like really starts adding up at that point but then you know every time you do that you've invested in this factory that now can actually like pump stuff out and you know help you every time we made a binding we were you know it was some point contributing to making the next one better because um, it was all in-house and we could see it. Whereas, you know, production that you outsource to people, they are going to, um, you know, they're probably going to come back next year and charge you more. And it's this, it's this curtain you can't see behind where if, if you were doing it, you could be like, oh, well, if we change this, this part would be easier to hang on to. We could make them faster. Um, we could make it better, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, that was that was huge for us too was moving it was called our fuse binding was the first one that was the one piece machine base plate um so jumping in you know changing that design um and getting into that uh zone was another big milestone and what sorry timeline wise what year are we at with the fuse that i think is like year three year three or four Something like that. So, so we're so 2009, 2010. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, and then beyond that, other big milestones were, you know, at that point we were um had been working with the folks over at uh Libtech, Bent Metal. They had been supplying us with, you know, first we were buying full bindings from them that were kind of on closeout. And so if you bought an early set of spark bindings, you got a spare set of base plates for conventional snowboards were in the box. Um, and then once they saw that we knew what we were doing, they let us like tack onto their order so we could just buy straps and high backs, hmm. um, which was huge. Cause that saved me a lot of money on each part. 
or each set of bindings, you know, that we were putting out. And then, you know, another big milestone after that was like the first time we did our own high back that we could put some split board specific features into it. It was huge. And that was like, you know, one of our first plastic injection molds that we had made. Um, and then over time we worked with like a independent factory after lib, um, which was cool because we got to like personalize the parts more, but, um, our users weren't like the biggest fans of them, of the straps and stuff, just cause they were a little more basic than what we had been working with before. And then mm-hmm. one of the big ones was getting the collaboration with Burton rolling. Um, cause they were, and still are kind of the, they're the, they're the big dog in the binding yep. world there for sure, you know, and, um, you know, definitely eat up a big piece of the pie every year on, you know, total like snowboard binding sales. And it's for good reason. They make awesome bindings, you know, and it's just the level of fit and finish and function, you know, leaves, uh, a lot of people in the dust. So hmm. for this, it was pretty amazing to me that, you know, the biggest snowboard company in the world uh yeah. was down down to sell parts to this weird little niche binding manufacturer in montana <laughs> um and that you know only came about because you know i had friends both you know inside and outside that were all like vouching for me and stuff like that so hmm. so that was that was huge as well so you know then we really upped the quality on our bindings that they're coming with the best straps and buckles that you could buy for any binding were now coming on the splitboard binding. So mm. that was, that was a big one as well. Um, and then, yeah, just over time, it's just been adding more machines, you know, moving to, um, these more production based machines, um, and adding more people to the mix. And now, you know, in the last couple of years, milestones include buying the factory that we're in, um, and knowing that, you know, Bozeman's got some boomtown action going, going yeah. on right now. And just yeah. knowing that our landlord's not going to come knocking and say, Hey, yeah, we, we sold the, you know, we sold the building to someone who's going to sell fine furniture out of here. You got a month to find a place to move your factory, <laughs> whatever. Yep. So, you know, we know we're always going to be in this part of town, which is, you know, again, 15, 20 minutes from the mountains, whereas, a lot of folks are, you know, the less expensive industrial real estate is kind of, you know, half an hour in the wrong direction, you know, in yep. terms of getting on the hill. So, so that was huge as far as like kind of locking in our future there. Um, and you've been in the new space since when? Well, we've been here for a long time. You okay. know, we, we were renting uh, this spot for five years before we bought it. And okay. so, you know, we've been in here all in all now for like seven years. So, um, but it was like, at first we shared like a third of the building with another company and then we rented two thirds of the building and shared it with them. Then we had two thirds all to ourselves. And then, then we bought the place and had the whole thing to ourselves, you know? So it's kind of, it was a cool space that way and that it, we could kind of scale up within the same walls um over time which was huge so hmm. and and now we're crammed and trying to figure out how we can fit everything in here but there's always ways to be more efficient with space so yeah um 
By the way, I'm noticing throughout this is you seem super chill and zen across the entire uh, telling of this history of Spark R&D. I mean, I, I'm either incredibly jealous of you because there either were no moments of sort of terrifying, dizzying decision making mm -hmm. uh, or there were and you just are, uh, you know, a better Buddhist than I am or something. But well, those I mean, are, when you're, when you're yeah. talking about buying, like buying space, I mean, those those in their own right are going from renting to buying. And, and are we are we kind of viable and sustainable enough, enough as a business to warrant, right, like getting out of the renting game and, and we're not sharing space, et cetera, et cetera. Those seem like those would be decisions, at least that would keep me up at night. For sure. And it, it's kind of funny over time because things just get scaled you know like i stressed out so hard about that first little milling machine that i bought uh you know for eight thousand yeah. dollars and i'm you know i'm like staring at the ceiling at night on that front you know i'm like oh you know it's eight thousand dollars like that yeah. was you know that was more than my subaru was worth at the time and you know but then i just kind of came to think of it over a while where it's like well you know I could have gotten a loan to buy like a bass boat, <laughs> you know, yeah. for more than that. And that doesn't produce revenue that just, yep. you know, you just spend money on that. So it was like at that point, you know, like early on, like buying machinery and stuff, I got essentially on a, on a handshake through a great uh, banker here in town um, who's on my, you know, list of awesome people that helped us out. But there mm. did come a certain point where, we grew and, you know, I was getting like a line of credit from him uh, to do our production. And, you know, when you're looking to borrow, you know, $8,000, you know, $20,000, whatever to those guys, that's, that's peanuts, you know, cause they're, you know, they're done with my meeting and they're, that's probably what they consider their like public service, you know, to talk to someone about a measly five grand for something. And the next meeting they're going to have is probably for like a $20 million, like real estate deal or yeah. something like that. But um, but, uh, we did, you know, as far as like, I was telling you like positive milestones, you know, like the real, you know, potholes, you know, ending up in the ditch, whatever that came along was like, you know, some of them is just unexpected stuff where it's like, we're cruising along, you know, we made a hundred bindings this year. Okay. We want to make 200 bindings next year. Okay. I want to make 400 bindings this year. And all of a sudden I've. I've hit the wall with my banker on like what he can give me on a handshake, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like our growth is too fast where I'm like, Hey, I want to make twice as much than I did last year. Isn't that great news? And to a banker there, that's, that's a scary proposition, you mm -hmm. know? Cause they're like, Oh, you're going to double what you did last year. You know, like a, a banker likes to see like 10 or 15% growth where it's mm -hmm. like, you've shown that you can do that much stuff and doing a bit more seems reasonable. But when you roll in there and you're like, I'm going to double or more on something, they're like, uh, yeah, sorry, can't help you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, had financial woes back then, which were just like, you know, I assume I'm walking into the bank and I'm going to get my, you know, 50 K or whatever I was looking for so I can fill these orders. And it's like late, you know, it's like September or something, um, you know, trying to build stuff for that season. And they're just like, sorry, can't help you. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, well, then you call all the friends and all the family you can find and scrape money together that fashion. So, you know, that, is that it, was is, a big by one. The way, isn't, isn't that funny? That seems to be such an underreported 
part of the story of so many companies. Like these moments where you rightly are like, man, we are killing it, right? Orders are coming in. This yeah. like this is fantastic. Most <clears throat> companies fail. This is proof we aren't. Yeah. And like your moment of of like very legitimate celebration quickly turns from somebody else's perspective of like, oh yeah, no, that's not tenable. And mm-hmm. you're sort of screwed. Now go figure it out. I still think that those moments somehow, I guess from the point of view of, you know, people thinking of like, you're starting a company and man, this is a cool story and Will made this happen. And it just seemed like it sort of went well over the years. It's like, ironically, even in some of those moments of like the greatest celebrations, you're about to find out that things aren't going quite exactly as you um, expected they would, right? The hangups, sure. unanticipated hangups. And so it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. That sounds really morbid. Like anytime you're tempted to celebrate, don't because the other shoe's about to drop. But um, yeah, I guess you can end up like pretty zen on both sides, you know, where it's like, well, you know, you see enough stuff. It's like, nothing will really get you down because you already have a list of things that you've <laughs> that you've made it past you know making it going into a production season with no money you know and like surviving that so it's like okay the next time some financial thing happens you're like ah eh, but you know there's reason to believe you can figure it out because you figured it out before um but you know and other things that happened over time it was like you know i had a had a good thing going with uh with the folks over at LibTech and I was buying like their bindings from last year and so they were you know I think they were discounted like 40% or something like that which was great and I just I just didn't pick up the phone this one week and then I called them to order more and at this time you know we were tiny and I was ordering like 10 or 20 pairs at a time and I called them up and all those bindings from last year were sold you know someone had come in um probably like you know a a discount retailer and had just bought up like all their old stuff and so then i had to buy this year's stuff um at you know full price so i just watched in front of me like you know eight thousand dollars or whatever it was just like disappear and you know it's like those are the things that can happen kind of any day um yep and at that point that was a lot of money and it's still a lot of money but you know all that stuff kind of scales over time um you know, there's the time when I uh, almost burnt the shop down because one of my, <laughs> you know, one of my machines, I had I had left uh, this lathe running, you know, to hopefully run itself. I had another guy in the shop who was running one of our milling machines and the machine aired out. Um, and so it stopped making parts, but it kept turning the spindle. You know, that's the part that spins around. Yeah. And so it's just sitting there spinning and that machine is cooled with oil um, rather than like a water-based coolant. Mm. And so it's just sitting there spinning and at a, like all the scrap from that stuff was kind of like spaghetti. So I've got like spaghetti hanging over this rod that's just spinning and it does that for some amount of time and that stuff gets red hot and then the oil that's sprayed in there uh catches fire and so this machine catches on fire my employee phil who had i think it started like three days before that luckily grabbed the um, fire extinguisher and put it out 
you know, so he woke me up and I went down there at, you know, two in the morning or something and saw that, yep, it was effed and (laughs) had caught on fire. And, you know, the next day you're calling the insurance guy and calling, you know, other machine shops around town to make parts that, you know, we thought we're going to make and letting people know that, you know, these crampons are going to be delayed because the machine we were making those crampon parts on is offline and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, those were big ones. You know, we just had a similar thing earlier on this summer where um, a fan in one of my machines uh, came loose. The the nuts that were holding it at the four corners um, came undone and the fan had like a sheet metal housing on it. And the sheet metal uh, started uh, rubbing on the main power cord that goes to the motor for that milling machine. And it's a 30 horse electric motor. So there's like a ton of power going through that cable and it sawed through the casing on that thing, electrified the machine, zapped, you know, a $4,000 component in the brains of that machine um, along with some other stuff. And then also zapped the machine next to it. So in an instant, there goes probably like 12 grand in repairs. Never mind. We're in our production season and I can't be down two machines out of six while I'm trying to make stuff. So, so yeah, that's the, (laughs) you know, happens, stuff happens. And, you know, we're always, you know, talking about owning our own factory and, you know, us manufacturing and we're very like do it yourself kind of people and there's tons of upsides to that but there's tons of downsides as well you know when you there's a lot of things that really suck about owning a factory but <laughs> on, on balance it, it is obviously you know we're very pro owning our own factory but you get to deal with all this other stuff whereas you know if you're working with uh, an external company you know you send off the po and then you don't get to hear all these gory details about their machines going offline or Yep. whatever labor strike is going on or some, you know, shipment doesn't come in for a month or any of those things, you know? So it's, it, it's not easy any way you slice it, but yeah, there's, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff. So yeah, it's easy to, to, you know, Zen will get beaten into you if you own a, <laughs> a company long enough because <laughs> things will happen, you know, or, or you'll, or you'll get out of it, you know, cause you yep. can't handle it. So exactly. Yeah. I think that's right. Very well put. Zen will get beaten into you. Yep. I, I love the philosophical turn this conversation has taken, but I also want to hear like, let's God, I still have so many questions I want to ask you. Give me, I, I want to ask about kind of the state of split boarding in general, like kind of ask the huge uh, God's eye view question. But before before we get there, give me give me, you know, a minute on kind of, you know, let's let's get to spark R&D 2018, the present moment. Right. Like we've heard some really interesting details about the past. How would you talk about where the company is at right now? Mm hmm. Yeah. So we are, you know, we're in great shape. We've, I just feel like our, you know, up until now and like when we were in our, you know, very early stages, like we just paddled into the wave at the right time and caught it Mm. um, because splitboarding was so small and so were we. So Mm -hmm. at the same time, whereas like getting into it now, you know, while the market's bigger and stuff like that, it's like, you got to 
you would really have to kind of hit the ground running with a lot of stuff um, mm-hmm. just because it is bigger. But, you know, there's pros and cons no matter when you jump into something. But, um, you know, we're at a very we're at a great scale now. You know, we're buildings pretty full. We've got about 40 people hmm. here involved. I just did payroll this morning. So, you know, and that's everyone from me down to, you know, someone who started two days ago, who's doing our very, you know, entry-level stuff on assembly line kind of factory work. So that's hmm. the whole shebang. You know, I mean, it's big for a ski or snowboarding company, but that's because we're also the factory. Whereas yep. you might talk to, you know, some of these other companies, you know, they're like, yeah, we're only five people, but it's, that's because everything else is, you know, outsourced or whatever. So, yeah. um, but yeah, we are, you know, enjoying yet another great year of growth, um, in the split board world, just due to it being, you know, now a relatively mature market. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're able to, you know, we're supplying, uh, you know, we're going to be up. 10 or 15% uh, compared to last year in terms of, um, you know, growth and all that jazz. So now that we are at a big scale, like I really am psyched on like that, you know, 10 to 20% growth per year. If I were looking at a hundred percent growth, I would have the same heartburn that the bankers do. Cause yep. it's like, you know, if you just got, you know, got through last year without much time to spare, how the heck would you do twice as much stuff, you know, next year? So, um, but yeah, we've got, very strong team, uh, in the building here, you know, helping us out. So, you know, we had, um, a lot of new, a lot of product changes this year and a lot of accessories. And so it's a really challenging year manufacturing, you know, in manufacturing terms. So, um, you know, for me looking out, uh, you know, at the next year, it's like, we need to do a lot of, we need to do a lot of work like on spark, not necessarily like on, you know, new products and so on. And, you know, people kind of assume that we're just spending all day long, you know, how can we like revolutionize the sport again, you know, next year. And then the year after that have other like brand new products and whatever, but, you know, we need to, you know, smooth out some things in a manufacturing sense and, um, you know, just get things here to, uh, a little bit more like Swiss watch action, yep. <laughs> you know? So it's, you know, the new stuff is great. It's my favorite thing. You know, I had an awesome year in terms of, you know, product development stuff and seeing what all my guys can do, but it's exhausting at the same time. And it's really hard to, you know, have a predictable year in manufacturing for things that you've never made before. Yep. So, you know, we're looking forward to next year, you know, we'll spend a lot of time working within our walls. So then, you know, the year after that, when we do have our next big idea, we'll be ready to jump on it and run with Mm -hmm. it. That's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to Will Ritter for the conversation. And be on the lookout for part two when we dive deeper into the current state of splitboarding, splitboard equipment, and Will talks about the current Spark R&D lineup and what's next. Thanks also to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And finally, if you enjoyed this show or actually just any of these Gear 30 programs, we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds and leave us a rating in iTunes. That would really help the cause, and you know, it would really be a nice gesture too. So thank you for doing that, and we will talk to you again next Friday. Take care, everybody.